This episode is sponsored by Smile Brilliant. If you're like me, Catherine, you're a bit overwhelmed by all of the teeth whitening products on the market, and our sponsor, Smile Brilliant, has provided us with some very interesting facts that we would like to pass on to you. Fact number one. Teeth whitening doesn't whiten your teeth. It removes stains and restores the tooth to its natural color, which might vary per person, but for most, it's an off-white or a slightly yellowish undertone. Fact two, teeth whitening does not damage teeth, but it does temporarily dehydrate. When dehydrated, the pores in the enamel are open and exposed. Open pores invite acids and sugars, which, as we all know, lead to tooth decay. Avoid or minimize acidic and sugary substances for at least 24 hours after whitening. Also, avoid staining substances as the teeth are more susceptible to restaining during this period. Fact three. Tooth sensitivity is the result of tooth dehydration. When the pores of the enamel are open, the teeth become dehydrated, exposing nerves to the elements. As the tooth rehydrates, the sensitivity dissipates. To accelerate the rehydration and curb sensitivity, use a post-whitening application known as remineralization or desensitizing gel. Fact four, caps and veneers cannot be whitened because they do not have pores for the stains to latch onto. So prior to having dental work, you should whiten your teeth, restoring them to their natural color as the dentist will be color matching to your current shade. Five, five, the key to teeth whitening is the delivery device. So long as a whitening product is a peroxide-based whitener, it will remove the stains. What differentiates one product from the other is the device that holds the whitening agent to the tooth without interruption. Whitening strips neglect the crevices and molars, and they slide on your teeth. Saliva floods the generic trays because they are bulky and they do not create a seal. And you likely did not know this, but LED lights are novelty items that add no benefit. You need a high-output UV light phoned only at the dentist. Don't fall for the gimmick. If you insist on a light that doesn't work, get one on Amazon for under $5. The number one whitening device recommended by dentists is the custom-fitted tray. You can have your dentist make your trays for $300 to $600, or you can head on over to www.smilebrilliant.com and use their LabDirect mail-in process for a fraction of the price you would pay at the dentist. Oh, and if you grind your teeth at night, you can also purchase Smile Brilliant's custom-fitted night guards. Once again, for a fraction of the price the dentists charge. Once again, that's www.smilebrilliant.com and use coupon code Agatha, A-G-A-T-H-A, you all know how to spell it, for an exclusive All About Agatha discount. Welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Catherine Broback. I'm Kemper Donovan. And we are returning yet again to a favorite topic, and that is early Poro. And as we sort of count these down, Kemper, you know, the sadder I get because we will eventually run out of these and I don't want to. Sweet, sweet Poirot of 1923. <laughs> I know, I know. And what and what Poirot and let us not forget Captain Hastings are we talking about this week? We are talking about the Cornish mystery, first published, of course, in 1923 in, of course, The Sketch in the UK. Yes. (laughs) November 28th, to be exact, as in our previous early Poirot short story. We're in late 1923, but we are still 
1923 because Christie wrote so many of these in that year. It is just so impressive. It deserves to be repeated again and again and again. In the U.S., it was published in The Underdog and Other Stories in 1951. That would be in book form. I suppose it didn't have a periodical publication in the U.S. It doesn't seem as if it did. And then in book form in the U.K., it was collected as part of Poirot's Early Cases by Collins Crime Club in the U.K. all the way in September of 1974. Can you tell us about our victim of this mystery, Catherine? Yes, the victim is uh, Mrs. Pengelly. She's a very anxiously thin, very feathered, um, middle-aged housewife who has become increasingly concerned her husband is poisoning her. But it seems like maybe she's a victim of gaslighting because everyone just tells her it's gastritis. It's not. She dies of arsenic poisoning. Seems like she's suffering from a case of gaslitis. Too soon, Kemper. Too soon. (laughs) Yeah, this is another one of those cases where Poirot is approached by a distinctly lower middle class. Well, we always have to use the word middle class carefully, right? Because it means different things on either side of the pond. But she's from a lower income bracket. Professional class, though. She has has household help and her husband is a dentist. True. But definitely one of Poirot's more modest clients. Not quite as modest as in The Adventure of the Clapham Cook, but it has a flavor of that where it's like, oh, okay, this is, you know, a, a regular person with some regular problems. And because the mystery is intriguing, Poirot, of course, is super into it because he's actually not a snob. He might be conceited about his own abilities, but he's not as much of a snob as I think uh, sometimes people assume he is. So just wanted to point that out as we move on over into our suspects for this case. First up, of course, we have the husband. That would be Mr. Pengelly. He is a dentist. Hmm, suspicious. And (laughs) he may or may not be carrying on an affair with his young fair-haired secretary, and her name is Miss Mark. So I suppose as the potential other woman, we should also list her as a suspect. Who else do we have, Catherine? Um, we have Frida Stanton, who is the niece, the Pengeli niece, and uh, she's recently had a bit of a tiff with her aunt. Um, even though Frida has lived with them for many years, she has uh, basically packed her bags and stormed off to take a breather. And then finally, we have Jacob Radner, who is a young man in Polgarwith. That's the Cornish town in which the Cornish mystery takes place. And he is friendly with both Frida and Mrs. Pengelly. And perhaps we will have more to say about that as we get into what is happening here. Uh, Let's start, as we always do, in the world as it appears to be. Take it away, Catherine Brobeck. So Mrs. Pengelly, as we said, comes to Poirot and she's incredibly anxious and she finally spits out that she thinks her husband's trying to poison her to death. Um, She gets sick when she eats food when he's at home, but unfortunately she's better when he's not there. And so she is convinced he's trying to offer so that he can marry his dental assistant. But she has no evidence other than the fact that there is, you know, some weed killer in the cabinets. Nor does she want to go to the police. She's very modest about this. She doesn't want any attention on it. Um, So it's both out of a fear of embarrassment and also uncertainty. She doesn't know. She's afraid that people will just think that she's crazy. 
We also find out that she's had a tiff with her niece, Frida, but their handsome young friend, Mr. Radner, seems to be playing go-between between these two ladies. We also find out that Mrs. Pengelly does not have any money of her own. Uh, the money in the family resides with Mr. Pengelly. So that's curious. It doesn't seem that money would be a reason for the husband to want to murder the wife. Uh, of course, we know that he may be having an affair, so perhaps he just wants to get rid of her so that he can marry his fair-haired assistant. Um, and then, yeah, you know, that half-empty bottle of weed killer in the kitchen is a staple of many an early Christie story, <laughs> and we certainly have it here. So that too is significant. Absolutely. So she leaves and Poirot tells Hastings, like, book some tickets. We're going to go to Cornwall. And Hastings is a little bit surprised, I would say, don't you think? Indeed. Yeah. And so they're going to go the next afternoon. And they do. Alas, when they finally arrive at the Pengeli house, they're greeted by the very talkative housemaid who announces that actually Mrs. Pengeli is no longer of this world as of 30 minutes before. This is unfortunate. Poirot is uh, very upset about this, frankly. He basically yells at himself in that very particularly Poirot way that he was stupid, that he should have come down faster. He knew something was off and he waited instead and now he came down and she's dead. Yeah, Poirot has a lot of regret here, which is not an emotion he often feels because uh, according to him anyway, he doesn't usually make mistakes, but he is quite regretful actually at his actions here. And he feels that this woman has died on his watch. She came to him for protection and he has failed her. So you know that Poirot now is not going to be stopped until he gets to the bottom of this mystery. Yeah. It also goes into a trope that we can see running through, I think a lot of, especially early Christie is that somebody comes to Poirot for help. And as a result of going to Poirot for help, it seals their fate. True. We don't necessarily know that at this point in the story, but perhaps that is what's going on here. Spoiler, perhaps. Catherine. Spoiler. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, but I am just pointing out that when you talk about not seeing remorseful Poirot, that's usually when we see him particularly remorseful. Indeed. So Poirot and Hastings, uh, while they are in Polgarwith, also meet with niece Frida and Jacob Radner. And it turns out, hey, they're engaged to be married. And Jacob goes with Poirot and Hastings outside and he says he's pretty certain that Mr. Pengeli was the one who offed his wife because Jacob actually saw Mr. Pengeli with that pesky container of weed killer. And Poirot and Hastings also find out uh, during these interviews with the two of them that that Mrs. Pengeli was somewhat awkwardly obsessed with Jacob, mm -hmm. even though Jacob obviously has been involved with Frida. They're engaged now, and they had been carrying on and a courtship also, for quite some and time. And also, they're both under 30, and Mrs. Pengeli is not a spring chicken. No, she's about 50-something, so this was definitely an older woman, younger man sort of an attraction, and that is met with much shock and consternation, I think, from Hastings, and I don't think any of us are surprised about that, and it leads to one of, for me, the highlights, although you might want to call it a low light of the story, and it's, it is certainly a passage that I underlined. This is Poirot speaking. 
and he's sort of schooling Hastings on the ladies as he does from time to time. In the autumn of a woman's life, there comes always one mad moment when she longs for romance, for adventure, before it is too late. It comes nonetheless surely to a woman because she is the wife of a respectable dentist in a country town. I just underlined that and wrote, wow. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, oh, Hastings. Well, oh, Hastings, but also oh, Poirot. I mean, Hastings, I'm rolling my eyes at him for being shocked. And then I'm rolling my eyes at Poirot because in that explanation, there's this sense of, you know, well, there's this phenomenon that happens when the ladies get old where they actually feel right. some attraction for younger men. And I know it's super weird but it happens so just fyi hastings this is actually a thing that happens and it's like oh there are just layers here of cultural biases and all you know all sorts of interesting viewpoints uh happening here both from hastings and poirot and perhaps christy writing this and uh the time in which she was writing and as always it's just an you know an, an interesting time reading a well, yeah, story because there, they're about a, humans of course but i mean also there is like a weird sort of let's just say it's not exactly a feminist leaning here but no. um, but I mean, you also see it when they visit the town doctor because he's just indignant about it and basically just says that, you know, his recently, as in very recently deceased patient was basically a silly woman and it's gastritis. And why would she go to Poirot? And this is like insane. And all I could think was welcome to women's health care even today, folks. I mean, there's a lot of um, men speaking for and on behalf of women in this story, and that very much includes Poirot, for better or worse. And to give Poirot and Christie credit, toward the end of the story, I think actually for better, but along the way, without question, for worse. And, you know, that excerpt that I read out is one of those moments. <laughs> so. Well, right. And also to mention that Jacob, you know, as you said, Jacob Redner goes out after Poirot and Hastings. Like, we get most of the accounting of it from him, not from Frida. Absolutely. And also he kind of absents himself, I believe, when Frida has to tell them about the fact that Mrs. Pengelly had a bit of an obsession mm -hmm. with Jacob Radner. It's, it's a very gendered story, actually. I mean, it's a story that is very much obsessed with male-female relations. And we hear a lot from men and we hear a lot from women. And they're often separate accounts and they don't necessarily gel with each other. And the mystery, in fact, also hinges, you know, very much on male-female relations. This is not unusual for Christie, but it's noticeable here, and it feels heightened, actually, in a way that it doesn't always, um, especially yeah. for a short story. Yeah, and then the story takes an even weirder twist, because Hastings says, well, don't you want to go visit Mr. Pengelly? And Poirot makes the comment, well, if you want to go to the dentist, you can come back here tomorrow, or we're going back to London. It's funny. So they go back to London and Hastings is like, what are we going to do in London? And Poirot's point is, wait, we'll wait. Poirot's like, drink chocolate for breakfast and syrup for tea and, you know, trim our mustaches and go to bed early. That's what we're going to do. <laughs> Sounds like my last 15 months. <laughs> Especially the trimming the mustaches part, right? <laughs> I mean, listen, I have some tweezers that, <laughs> like, <laughs> some behind the scenes for our listeners. 
I actually saw Kemper in person not that long ago. And I, it was I a momentous occasion in both of our, I know, our lives. Huge, hugely momentous occasion. And I definitely checked in the mirror to make sure that like after all these months, I didn't have like some weird like witch hair. <laughs> I didn't actually. So I was very like, I was like, I'm so proud of myself. I will say, I mean, I have facial hair and uh, in the age of masks, it never was there a better excuse to neglect my trimming of the beard hair. And it has, oh, no, it has been was, an interesting was, time. That was my total. <laughs> that was my total fear when I went over to see you guys is that I didn't realize until I was sort of parking that I was like, oh, no, I didn't check to see if I have like one weird hair. <laughs> so at the end of that conversation that Jacob Radner has with Poirot and Hastings, you know, he says, well, better that this all be hushed up. Poor Mrs. Pengelly is past help. And what's the point of having uh, this scandal visited on the family? He's obviously marrying the niece of Mr. Pengelly. And Poirot is basically like, well, good luck to you on that, because this is a small town and people talk in small towns. And that, of course, is what he's waiting for, for these few weeks when they go back to London. And sure enough, several weeks later, there is an item in the paper that the public talking about this apparent scandal as to Mr. Pengelly and the weed killer and the suspicious death of his wife has created enough uproar that Mrs. Pengelly's body has been exhumed. And lo and behold, she was basically just packed to the brim with arsenic and Mr. Pengelly is arrested. Mm-hmm. It doesn't help that he actually is in fact involved with his assistant. Now his fair hair secretary. Surprise. Yep. Miss Marks. There definitely was something going on between them. There's no clarification needed on that point in the story that they really were carrying on an affair. You know, perhaps it didn't become physical or as he might've waited until the them. body had cooled. Exactly, exactly. But certainly, you know, there were some hijinks afoot uh, when Mrs. Pengelly was accusing him of straying. So she was correct on that score. And perhaps she was correct that he was trying to kill her. So Mr. Pengelly is put on trial and Poirot and Hastings attend the trial as they do. And afterwards, they, you know, go for a cuppa with Jacob Radner to discuss the fact, well, you know, of course, Pengelly is guilty. And this is all just kind of merrily rolling along as it should should, except we are in the world as it appears to be, not the world as it actually is. This is a Christie story, and we have a couple of clues here, actually, that are going to bridge us over. So take it away, Catherine. I think there's a big clue here, and you can disagree with me, but I think it's actually very clever because it's at the very beginning of the story. Because Hastings notes up front that Mrs. Pengelly's visit was rather odd. And so Poirot and Hastings discuss it, especially the fact that Poirot wants to take on this case, because why would she come to them rather than the police if she thought she were being poisoned? If she doesn't want her husband caught, that wouldn't make sense because she's going to the most famous private detective in England. And so, well, okay, what's the alternative to that? Well, what if she does want him caught? Okay, well, that's another interesting turn. Why would that be? What is her actual reason to go to Poirot? Because it just doesn't make sense if she was that scared why she would go to him and not go immediately to the police. I totally agree with you. 
that that this is a the main clue and it's an extremely clever clue i actually oh, um it's really good there's a, there's a line from Mrs. Pengelly on the second page that I underlined because it seems like we're in such standard Christie territory. She says, anything's better than this wearing uncertainty. And of course, Christie often talks about, you know, the fact that the innocent don't deserve to exist with a cloud hanging over them and everyone needs the certainty of knowing who did it so that the innocent can go free. But... What Christie's doing here is actually turning that notion on its head. And it is really clever because all of the pieces to get ourselves through this clue are really given to us in that consultation with Mrs. Mm-hmm. Pengelly, as you just laid out, because it's true. Poirot even says right up front to Hastings, well, most wives believe in their husbands and they never think anything bad of their husbands, even if it's staring them in the face. That obviously isn't the case because she just said that she thinks her husband's poisoning her. So in that case, why not go to the police? If you think your husband's poisoning you, then you've given up on your marriage. And why would you care if everyone knows about it? Why this need for discretion? What is up with that? And that's why he takes the case, because that's interesting. And he doesn't know why. Well, it's also um, why I think he feels so guilty, because I think that his interest in the case is what is she lying about? Right. Or what is she at least not telling us? She is she is omitting. She is lying by omission about something. And Poirot knows that up front because of this curious situation here of her consulting him and yet thinking that her husband is guilty. And it's yeah, it's just such a great clue because it makes perfect sense. It's based on character and, you know, human psychology. But I would defy most people to deduce this clue within the first three or four pages of this short story. And yet once we get to the other side of it, it's totally obvious. So it's just it's a brilliant Christie clue. Yeah, um, I, I really like it. I think it's I think it's very clever. Clue number two, Kemper, I think it's very related to number one. And we already touched on it. Why don't you take clue number two since you're you're right. This is sort of part two of uh, okay. so, the same clue. As we said before, why doesn't Poirot interview Mr. Pengeli? I mean, as we said, Hastings directly asks him. Poirot basically says it doesn't matter. This is like a slightly mean on Poirot's part and on Christie's part to the reader because it essentially means that Poirot has figured out what's going on at this point. (laughs) So now we just wait for the rest of the story because at this point we know that Poirot knows what's happened. What he's doing is he's laying a trap. Let's be clear. (laughs) That's what the rest of this is. But what we know from him not doing it is that there are two options. Either he's certain Mr. Pengeli's guilty which does not appear to be the case, or he is certain that Mr. Pengeli is not guilty. Right. And it really does go hand in hand with clue number one, because what Poirot realizes in that consultation with Mrs. Pengeli is that she's not telling them something. There's some sort of intrigue or some secret that Mm -hmm. she's keeping from them. And, you know, there are only a few types of secrets that that could possibly be. And, you know, we mentioned this is a story very much about relations between men and women. She's already accusing her husband of, uh, you know, a dalliance and essentially cheating on her. It's not too far of a leap to think what this might be, this secret that she's keeping from them and that she didn't want to admit to in a consultation to strangers. And if Poirot's not even bothering to interview the husband, well, that means that this dead woman must have had some relations with someone else that she wasn't telling us about. And there aren't that many other characters in this story. So it's, again, one of those clues that when we really think about it, the answer just becomes obvious. But to be clear, when I was reading this story, at no point was the answer 
officer staring me in the face. I mean, this is not one of those stories where I was like, yeah, 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 I get it, I get it, I get it, I get it. I assume I read it before. I don't really remember it. I, you know, I don't think it's like one of the shining jewels within the Christie canon of Poirot short stories, but I think it's a really good one. And um, it good. I, it's good. And I was entertained and I, I felt very satisfied once I got to the other side of it. And I did not really see it coming as much as I think sometimes you do in these Poirot short stories. So we really only have one more clue. And this one is a Christie classic, I'm happy to say. But again, I think layered in there very cleverly into a pretty short, short story. And this has to do with lines of inheritance. We should never fail to concentrate on any sort of inheritance-related issue in a Christie story, no matter how slight or how tangentially mentioned. We are told, glancingly, that Mrs. Pengelly has no money of her own but that Mr. Pengelly is quite wealthy. We are also told that Frida, Mr. Pengelly's niece, is the only child of his only sister. I'm not sure, actually, if we're told that she's the only child of his only sister, but we definitely are told that this is his only sister. And it doesn't seem as though there are any other children of this sister. So I think it's a fair assumption to make that this niece is his sole survivor because they didn't have any children. So the deduction here... Which is tricky, but I think, again, an astute reader who really zeroes in on anything having to do inheritance, I I think can legitimately deduce this from the story. The deduction is that if both Mr. and Mrs. Pengelly die, you know, Mrs. Pengelly via arsenic, Mr. Pengelly via the rope after he's found guilty for Mrs. Pengelly's death, then the sole survivor, Frida, inherits. Hmm. Well, who would have a motivation in that case? (laughs) And we are very much now, I think, getting a clearer picture of what's happening here as we move on over into our resolution. Take it away, Catherine. So Paro Hastings and Jacob Radner go get tea at a tea shop and discuss the case. Radner, you know, basically says, oh, it's so unfortunate that Pengali will hang. And Paro says, oh, it's okay. He's not going to hang because actually you're going to sign a piece of paper. At which point he pulls out of his, you know, very neat suit, a confession, which is quite a thing to um, have thrown in front of you over a kappa. You know, in our last episode involving a Poirot short story, which was The Adventure of Johnny Waverly, fast forward if you haven't read that one yet, but we had Poirot throwing a blank piece of paper in Mr. Waverly's face, remember, and Mm -hmm. saying, okay, now you're going to tell me where your son is. And now we have him brandishing a confession. He's he's quite the drama king, (laughs) isn't he? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, definitely, definitely is. He also points out the two men outside of the tea shop, Mm -hmm. you know, so that Radner Radner knows there's no running. Radner says, you can't prove anything. And Poirot replies, can't I? I am Hercule Poirot. Look out of the window, monsieur. There are two men in the street. They have orders not to lose sight of you. Radner strode across to the window and pulled aside the blind, then shrank back with an oath. You see, monsieur, sign it is your best chance. And sign he does. Uh, He's basically like, yeah, 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 okay, fine. (laughs) I wanted to marry Frida, but Frida didn't have enough cashola for me. But her uncle did. But if the uncle died, unfortunately, the money would go to his wife, not to Frida. The money would only go to Frida if both Mr. and Mrs. Pengelly died. So that is uh, what the dastardly Jacob Radner set out to do. He seduced 
Mrs. Pengelly. I assume he did that quite dexterously, you know, with Frida not realizing that it was happening. I'm not sure I'm, how he pulled I that off hope, in the same I house. Hope, well, I know. It's a little bit like maybe Frida goes out to do errands and then he massages Mrs. Pengelly's feet or something. I don't know. <laughs> it's like it's it's we're edging into French farce territory at that point, but it's certainly <laughs> not it's not alluded to that way at this point in the story, but that is what he did. And he, you know, made Mrs. Pengelly fall in love with him. And he is the one who convinced her that her husband was cheating on her, which <laughs> he was, but also poisoning her. And the truly, truly devious thing that he did is that it was he who was poisoning her every time her husband was around. So she was, in fact, being poisoned with arsenic slowly. And it wasn't just in her head. And, that it, was when, and it was when her husband was around. Right. So, you know, people were thinking, oh, she's just making it up and she's having psychosomatic symptoms because she's worried that her husband is making her sick and poisoning her. But no, she actually was being poisoned every time her husband was around by her lover. (laughs) So poor, poor Mrs. Pengelly. Oh, yeah. It's very, very sad for her. And the whole thing is the more paranoid she got, the more people were like, "Okay, well, maybe there's something here. She tells the doctor repeatedly. Right. Mm hmm. The twist that Radner couldn't predict was that she went to Faro. Right. That sealed her fate, as you said. As I said earlier, it seals her fate because once she tells Radner, who, of course, you know, she thinks is her great love, it forces his hand. He has to kill her before Faro can get to Cornwall. Right, which is why he basically dumps a whole bunch of that arsenic into something or other that she ingests that evening. And that is why, or I suppose that day, actually, right? Because <laughs> they... Yeah, they don't get there until seven. Yeah, that's why she dies so quickly and unexpectedly. And Poirot beats himself up for not having been able to foresee that. But yeah, the entire idea is that, of course, he <laughs> kills two birds with one stone because Mrs. Pengelly is dead which means she can't inherit. But then he is very effectively framed Mr. Pengelly for that death, meaning that he will be executed and the estate will go to Frida since Mr. Pengelly has quite a tidy sum tucked away. And Jacob Radner will be able to marry in wealth and comfort, if not for our dear Belgian detective. So, um, you know, the funny thing is, what does what does Poirot do at the end after Radner signs Kemper? Um, he does a very typically odd Poirot thing where he gives Radner a 24-hour head start. If he signs a confession, Poirot will go count in the corner before he chases after him. To be fair to Poirot, he uses that as a carrot to get Radner to, to confess in the first place. Yeah. yeah. Well, no, he and says, also- sign this paper and you shall have 24 hours start, 24 hours before I place it in the hands of the police. Well, and also he tells Hastings that he, you know, has plenty of faith that Scotland Yard will quickly handle this. Yeah, this is how the story ends. It's Poirot speaking to Hastings. Well, well, we must keep our word. 24 hours, did I say? So much longer for poor Mr. Pengelly, and it is not more than he deserves. For mark you, he deceived his wife. I am very strong in the family life, as you know. Ah, well, 24 hours. And then I have great faith in Scotland Yard. They will get him, mon ami. They will get him. The end. This message is brought to you by Best Fiends. 
Catherine, a little birdie told me that a certain little lizard and you have been making great strides in your ever-burgeoning relationship together. You know, Kemper, I could try to be coy about this, but why would I bother? (laughs) What's the harm in shouting from the proverbial rooftops about my relationship with Howie the Lizard and how we are truly, madly, deeply in love, that we together can defeat slugs, we can solve puzzles, and we can advance through level after colorful level of kaleidoscopic fun. You know, I say this without even a scintilla of irony, Catherine. You go, girl. And that's exactly what Howie the Lizard and I will do. We will go forever. So engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this five-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. Yeah, I mean, that is just such classic Poirot. And I actually love that in the text, there's no question that Poirot is going to stick to his promise to this murderer, (laughs) Jacob Radner. But in the adaptation, it is much fuzzier. And we may as well transition into a discussion of the adaptation of this story, which, of course, was produced as part of our delightful Suchet series. What was the season series in which it appeared, Catherine? Series two? It's a Clive Exton number. You know. It is. We always like a Clive Exton episode, right? Yeah, I mean, this is another great early Suchet episode. So everyone is young and there's a lot of fun to be had. And yes, it's Clive Exton. So the the story itself is actually pretty action-y. So Clive Exton didn't really have to add that much. It's extremely faithful. Oh, Um, very, very close to the text itself. Yeah, very close to the text. We get a lot of really funny moments. Hastings has to define the word hussy. For Poirot at one point. What is this hussy, Hastings? Mm. Means the sort of girl who's sort of no better than she ought to be, kind of thing. No better than. That's it. And it's really awkward and kind of adorable because he doesn't quite know what to say. And Poirot finally gets it. With regards to... uh, The dental assistant. Right. She's described as fair-haired in the story. She is a peroxide bottle blonde here. I mean, she looks like Jean Harlow. Yeah. You know, we get like an entree point with Miss Lemon, which is really nice, right? Yeah, but um, not, still not enough. I found her finger curls to be extremely dark and prominent. Like, I don't think that they had quite figured out her finger curls yet. They're missing at the very beginning of the series. And then even in season two, I was like, these look weird. There was something off about them. Couldn't quite put my finger on what it was, but it's like they were, there was too much of them somehow or something. It was, hmm. it was bizarre. Have, I, I, did not notice that, but I will have to go back and look to see if I can be equally judgmental, Kemper, about Miss Lemon's hair. 
as a fellow finger curl connoisseur, I urge you to uh, to look back at, uh, you know, Pauline Moran's wiggery in this episode. Hey, yeah, hey, I, 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 I full on pin curled my hair once in my 20s because I was like, it can't be that hard. And let me just say, it was not a good call on my part. <laughs> <laughs> it's tricky. I have to I have to imagine it's really really tricky. They look they look fake here. I actually I'm not sure whether or not they're part of Pauline Moran's real hair. You no, know, I think she says in something, didn't she, that they they glued them on? And you can tell here. I I I think they they managed to make them look a little bit more natural, I think as the series progressed, but they looked very fake to me in this episode in particular. But I did appreciate and this is part of the slight recalibration that they do with the Hastings character, which I think is so effective. So just want to point it out in the text, as we noted, Poirot is the one who thinks of the bluff having to do with the two men out the window in the episode. It's Hastings who thinks of it. And there's a really nice moment at the end when Poirot is like, Hastings, those two men of yours, who are they? I have the foggiest idea. I just noticed them standing there when we came in. But that is sheer brilliance. Oh. Well. It's just a really nice moment, and it's small, and Hastings is still a buffoon throughout this episode. I mean, he's still shocked and horrified at the notion that Mrs. Pengelly had any sort of feelings for the younger Jacob Radner, for example, and he's still as much of a doofus as he always is, but they give him these little moments that just really serve to elevate his intelligence slightly. And it just does a lot, I think, to maintain the close relationship between these two that they have in the series, as opposed to the text, actually. Yeah, I I agree. I don't know that Hastings is necessarily made out to be a buffoon in the text. He's just always very in his own world. <laughs> Okay. All right. Fine. I'm being generous. Okay. Well, I mean, my massive degree of affection for Hastings probably has blinded me in this regard. I'm being simplistic. He has layers in the text, just as he has layers in the series, in the adaptations. But I think that they err on the side of giving him just a soupçon more intelligence in the series. And I appreciate it because I think that they do it sparingly, but judiciously. And it just really helps, as does, of course, Hugh Fraser playing the role. But it's still the Hastings on the page, but just the slightest, thinnest gloss to make him just that that much more intelligent and with it. And really, Philip Jackson, we've talked about this before as well, but Philip Jackson does the same thing with Jap. Jap on the page is a crass opportunist, and we can still have a lot of affection for him, but Philip Jackson keeps all of that in his portrayal, but also gives him some savvy. And we actually see that in this very episode because, of course, Inspector Jap comes to Polgarwith and he is the inspector who's just so thrilled that this is an open and shut case. And for once, things are totally simple and, you know, things are as they appear. Poor Jap, poor deluded Jap. And Poirot and Hastings, after they've blown this case wide open and know that the trial of Mr. Pengelly is about to be adjourned, they see Jap eating a Cornish pasty <laughs> in the street. Oh, there's Jap. Mm. I don't know what you're going to tell him. 
Nothing at all, Hastings. I hate to be the bearer of bad news. He will learn soon enough that his open and shut case has the broken hinges. Poirot, come and try one of these. He's just like chowing down and he's so happy. And Poirot is like, okay, let's get out of here before he finds out because he is going to lose his mind. <laughs> and he does. And he actually, he literally shakes his fist at Poirot in the street. Sir, the inspector says, can you come please, sir? The trial's been adjourned. Adjourned? What for? Mr. Radner's confessed, sir. Confessed? To the murder. He confessed to that French gent in writing. Poro is like in this wagon down the road, but even before that happens, Jap is looking at Poirot and Hastings as they retreat, and he knows that something is up, and that is all Philip Jackson's performance, and also probably the production and the and the direction and the writing of the series, and that is not Jap on the page. Jap on the page just doesn't know anything. He's pretty much an idiot, and I, I appreciate that too, because it makes this family really stick together, and, you know, and Pauline Moran also, right? I mean, we talk about that all the time, how she brings so much more to Miss Lemon than there is on the page, so it's just it's just worth noting how much they really bring to these characters. Yeah, I would agree. I would disagree that Jap comes off as an idiot on the page. He comes off as a kind of a bureaucrat, to be honest, which is funny that he's a scum. Oh, yeah, okay. Don't do that. <laughs> don't do that noise again. I don't I don't totally agree with you. But like um the other thing that I would say about the adaptation is the atmospherics are really nice in this one. Yeah, well, you know, it's funny. Mark Aldridge, of course, has something to say about this in Agatha Christie on screen. He said that this episode was filmed in Dunster, Somerset, rather than the county of the title. It's interesting that it wasn't actually filmed in Cornwall. And he goes on to say, the decision to film this episode in November resulted in an atmospherically rain-drenched location that breaks away from the series' traditional bright and sunny view of the past, while the extensive location filming makes this feel almost as exotic as the series' trip abroad. And it's really true you can tell that it's really raining in the mm-hmm. opening scene with the consultation. Uh, Poirot and Hastings and Mrs. Pengelly are walking in the green in front of Whitehaven mansions and they each have an umbrella. And then for some reason, which actually feels a little out of character for Poirot, David Suchet puts his umbrella down and he walks in between Hastings and Mrs. Pengelly, each of whom have their umbrella. And as anyone knows who, you know, lives in a place where it rains regularly, if you're walking in between two umbrellas, you're going to get wet because you're going to get the runoff from the umbrellas and you can see it on his coat. And he's wearing this wonderfully thick light gray woolen coat that looks very, very snug, but he gets really wet. Like, significantly more wet than Hugh Frazier or the actor playing Mrs. Pengelly do, but you can really tell that it's raining. I mean, this is not someone like, you know, standing with a bucket over their head. It's quite real and lovely. Yeah, no, I, that's one of the biggest takeaways from this episode is yeah. How atmospheric the rain is. The only other tidbit I have, which is also from our good friend Mark in his other book, Agatha Christie's Poirot, The Greatest Detective in the World, is that this apparently was one of the Poirot short stories that Christie's daughter, Rosalind, uh, considered weaker, actually, than most, and not as good of a candidate for adaptation, though 
clearly ITV had its way on that score since they adapted it pretty early on in the second season. And we talked about how the first season had none of the Poirot investigate stories, but in the second season, they did start mixing those in. This one does appear in Poirot's early cases, but I actually have a lot of affection for it, even more so, I think, after talking about it during the course of this episode. I think there's a lot going on here, and that Christie pulls off a really pleasing mystery in, you know, not too many pages. Mm -hmm. Um, And sometimes these short stories are a little awkward, right? Like the clues are very obvious, and even though they're fun and we have good character moments, especially between Poirot and Hastings, they just feel like little exercises and not much more. But this feels like a fully coherent, functional, short mystery. Well, it's also, it's not that short, actually, either. Yeah, I guess I guess that's true. I keep on calling it a short, short story, but you're right. It's not. It's yeah, you're you're absolutely right. I mean, it's, I wouldn't say it's one of her longer ones, but it's not one of her shorter ones either. And and I think she uses that space really well, right? Like that's probably why she's able to create such a coherent short mystery as she does, layering yeah. those clues as well as she does. Yeah, yeah. I um I enjoyed it. I enjoy the adaptation. I don't think it's spectacular, but I mean, I have a really hard time saying anything bad about it. Yeah, I did also. One of my favorite lines was when Poirot tries to use idiom in the Suchet series, and he says, get off Scottish free. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes I roll my eyes when they have David Suchet saying things like that, but that one I thought was pretty funny. Like, wasn't there a wild gooseberry chase? Yes, there was. That was another one. Yeah. 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 No, um, no, I, um, I, I think that uh, especially if you too are sitting around on a rainy afternoon, it's hard to go wrong with this. It's hard to go wrong with it, and I think that the only other divergence between adaptation and text that I want to mention is that in the text, there's no question again that they're going to wait the 24 hours before they pursue Jacob Radner. But here, they have a lot of fun with that because it's so ludicrous. And Hastings is like, you're not really going to wait, are you? And Poirot is like, well... And then as they're pursuing him and sort of following up with the people in court and getting an adjournment, Hastings then is the one who seems like he actually wants to stick to what they said to Jacob Radner and, like, you know, stand by their word. And Poirot is like, I don't know what he's talking about. (laughs) And then, you know, things just kind of go on from there. So they really do not stick to the 24 hours in the story, which I thought was funny. And then the only other thing is that the dental assistant here, again, she's, you know, she looks like Jean Harlow. There are clearly feelings going on between them, but we don't get the clarity that we do in the text that they definitely were carrying on an affair, which I thought was interesting. It almost feels as though the irony here is that they weren't. I felt like we were being pulled in that direction as audience members that, well, even if they have feelings for each other, actually, Mr. Pengelly is quite upstanding. And so is this blonde assistant. Don't let appearances deceive you. Don't judge a book by its cover. And I, I found that to be one of those ways in which the early seasons are a little bit more innocent and sunny than the Christie texts themselves, which always just amuses me because they went in the opposite direction later in the series when they would make the adaptations more sexual and tawdry than the Christie text. So it's just and darker. So it's just interesting to me that they actually sometimes lightened these adaptations a little bit. It's barely there. And maybe I was reading into it, but that's how I felt. It's not explicit in the text that he was actually having an affair. 
it's not explicit, but the fact that they are, they get engaged, don't they? Yeah, they do. But after, I mean, that's, it's several months later, right? Yeah. I think, doesn't Poirot say though? I thought he says. Well, that's why he, that's why he doesn't mind letting him just sit in a jail cell at the end. That's the implication is that he was. Right, yeah, in the, yeah. Right. In the passage that I read, he says he deceived right. his wife. Yes. So, yeah. you know, I mean, Poirot is always right, I suppose. So I, I think we're supposed to believe that. <laughs> having, having not spoken to the man, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. No, I mean, it's just, there's a cynicism there and a. Yeah, a, definitely so. A minor darkness to the text that they at least lightened a little bit, I think, or didn't choose to emphasize in the adaptation. And they certainly would have made the opposite choice if it had been later on right. in the series, which I just, I just find it interesting that those choices changed as the series went on. the Cornish mystery. I kind of want to eat a Cornish pasty right now after having mentioned that Jap was gnawing on one in that adaptation. I just, I, I find it to be an extremely pleasing food stuff. You know, it's like an inside out pie. Most people, to love. It, you know, who doesn't like a hand meat pie? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Your hands don't get messy and yet, you know, you're able to eat all sorts of warm, gooey goodness. It's genius. <laughs> Join us next time for a novel episode. We are very excited that we will be covering a Poirot. Right, Catherine? We're covering Third Girl. That will be next time. And in the meantime, you could always, if you want more content from us, go on over to our Patreon page. We're at www.patreon.com slash allaboutagatha. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. You could also email us at allaboutthedame at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at All About the Dame. You can find Catherine on Twitter at Brobcat. Our Instagram handle is at All About Agatha. And if you haven't yet done so, please give us a rating or a review. It really helps us out. We'd love to hear from you. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.